Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. Good morning. I need to uh, take something out of my pocket that's banging against the microphone. So there we go. We are in the midst of a uh, three-part series of discovering your true identity, knowing who and whose you are. And uh, last week we talked about uh, mistaken identity. And today we're going to go a little bit deeper into that. Before we do that, um, I had mentioned last week that I want to repeat uh, again this week is that we're in the process of taking this message to Kenya. Jennifer already has it, uh, has taken it several times to the women over there, and it's become a movement. And the men are eagerly awaiting their portion of the teaching, uh, true men, which we hope to take over there uh, during the month of June. And so we're in the process of raising about $10,000 to get us over there, uh, we have to pay for the Kenyans to come and stay at Camp Chimmy Chimmy uh, to hear the message, materials, etc. And so we have some cards over on the table there. There's also a photo book of Jennifer's previous trips over there. And uh, we have these cards there, sponsor a Kenyan for $100. Uh, we'll, you know, uh, sponsor one Kenyan to go through this materials. And, and we uh, have a goal of taking it to at least 100 pastors. Um, you could do partial sponsorship, but then you get, you know, problems. Is it from the head up? Is it from the waist up? Or is it, you know, so, but, so, but anyway, maybe this is something you want to consider as a class or as individuals as the Lord leads you to help, uh, take this message of true identity to, uh, the pastors in Kenya. So last week we talked about mistaken identity and, uh, we talked about the story of, uh, the little lion named Simba. Can you all hear me okay? I was too loud, wasn't I? That's hard to imagine, but <laughs> some folks in the back background are having issues. So a little louder. We'll get it right. The system, yes. We talked about Simba's story. We talked about the example of uh, Saul of Tarsus as uh, examples of, of people who had embraced the mistaken identity. And we talked about the fact that God has created us with a unique identity that resembles his image. We're the only creatures that have been created in the image of God and for a unique purpose. But that most of us have embraced somewhere along the line a mistaken identity as a result of Satan's deception that comes at us through culture, through things that people have said, through our own assumptions and misconceptions in the church about what a Christian man or woman should be, uh, and what God expects of us. There's all kinds of things that is thrown at us throughout our lifetime that tends to skew our perception of who we are, and that is what we call a mistaken identity. And so today we're going to take a little bit uh, of a step further, and we, we're going to take a closer look at the core of these subtle deceptions. Lies. What are they? What are these untruths that we have embraced and incorporated into our belief system and often done so without realizing it? First of all, the origin. Where do these lies come from that we're talking about? Well, that's a fairly easy answer. John 8.44 says, And he, that is the devil, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So essentially, you could say that all lies origin, originate with Satan. He is the origin of the lies that permeate our culture and permeate so much of our thinking. The apostles' teaching implies that it's very important for every Christian to be aware of these lies. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We uh, said last week that the reason why he bombards us with lies through our culture, through what people say, and all these different ways in which he tries to skew our perception of what God's truth is about us, is because if he can get at us, he has a chance to win the war over dominion of the universe, because God has placed it in our hands to rule his creation. So if Satan can rule us, he can rule creation through us. And of course we know how the story ends, but he isn't giving up. Satan's lies usually follow certain patterns, certain schemes. That's what this text in 2 Corinthians 2.11 suggests. So let's look at the anatomy and the process of these lies. How do these, how do these lies work exactly? First of all, they have a goal. Uh, the goal that every lie that comes at us from Satan has is to drive a wedge between us and God and us and each other. He wants us to believe about ourselves that we can be like God. You remember the story from Genesis chapter 1, the first lie that ever entered mankind. If you eat from this fruit, you can be like God. Awesome. So he wants us to believe that we can be masters of our own universe, in charge of our own destiny. You can be your own God. I mean, isn't that really this, the, uh, the message behind the American dream? You can go from rags to riches and you can be your own God and you can own this and own that. And you can be in charge of your future and in charge of your own destiny. You can be God. And there are teachings out there that have crept even into the church. It's amazing how many Christians I talk to that really believe that we are God. And in the new age environment that we are God. And we are part of the Godheads. And we are in charge of our own destiny. And God has given us the ability to rule our own lives without dependence on Him. And He wants us to believe about God that God doesn't love us. And that He is distant. Or that He is a guy with a big stick behind the door ready to condemn us at every turn. And that He can help us, but He won't help us because we don't deserve it. We've done something wrong and so he won't help us. Those are the kinds of things that he wants us to believe about God. Does it sound familiar to you here and there? Somewhere in the back of our minds. Even I have to catch myself. We depend so much. We were talking about that this morning on the way up here. We depend so much as a non-profit ministry on God's provision, on God's miraculous provision. And doubt sometimes creeps in and I have to catch myself and I think I believe that God can help me, can provide supernaturally, but sometimes doubt creeps in about whether or not he will. He will do that for me or for us. It's amazing how constant these lies are, even if you consider yourself a mature believer. Apart from the goal, there is a lure, of course. A lie is not just blatantly a lie, because then you would easily detected and cast it aside. So most lies come to you disguised. It's a deception that doesn't appear to be a lie. Remember that Satan goes around masquerading as an angel of light. He comes to you as if he was a messenger of God. 
And so a lot of times Satan, who knows Scripture very, very well, will twist it. He will take a passage of Scripture, a verse out of context, and say, look, if you look at it this way, you could be that. He tried that with Jesus in the desert. He threw lies at Jesus. He said, I'll show you a shortcut to fame and glory. Do this and worship me. And I will give you everything, all the kingdoms of this world. And he would twist scripture trying to do that. Cults have started by people that were alone and got an apparition of an angelic being who said that they were a messenger from God. Islam started that way. The prophet Muhammad was visited in the desert by a being who told him that he was God and he gave him this mission. And Mormonism started that way with Joseph Smith and the archangel Moroni who gave him the uh, the Book of Mormon and as the basis of the Mormon religion. Those were angelic beings portraying themselves to be messengers from God. But they twisted truth or they added things to the truth. And so lies begin to appear. Sometimes it comes to us like an appeal to common sense. Well, if I do this, that, or the other, that makes sense. Or a stroke to the ego. <coughs> Listen to the lie again to Eve. If you eat from this fruit, you know, I know God has said that, you know, you shouldn't eat from it, but he didn't really mean that. If if you eat from this fruit, you could be like God. Well, that sounded good. That was a stroke for the ego. And it made sense. Like, well, he has made us in his own image. So I might as well do it. And so she did it. A lie disguised as a very sensible thing to do can sometimes still lead to disastrous consequences. So lies come to us at a lure. Those of you who go fishing know exactly what a lure is. It's something very, very attractive that a fish is drawn to. A bait, perhaps, or a little colorful thing that flaps around in the water that can that a fish can chase. And the fish sees the lure, but he doesn't see the hook. And as soon as he bites into the lure, he also bites into the hook. That's what a lie does as it comes to us from the devil. Then there are several types of lies, four main types of lies. There's probably more, but these are the four main ones. First, there are lies of comparison. Haven't we always done that? We call it keeping up with the Joneses. If we have this, we'll be happier. If we do that, people will think more of that. I wish I could be more like him. And what it does is it makes us discontent. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. We idealize certain people or certain situations. And frankly, all of advertising is aimed at that. If you own this, or if you drink that, or if you do that, or if you travel over there, then you are somebody. And most of it is basically that we want to impress other people. So that other people will say of us, oh, look at him. He is successful. He is such a great guy. Who did that? And that strokes our ego. And and so these lies of comparison creep in. And all they lead to is failure and feeling inadequate and jealousy and envy and discontent. We have done that many, many times. I mean, you know, we have exactly not been at the deep end of the, of the, uh, pool of wealth in Christian ministry. And, and I have to confess to you, when we were a lot younger and we were struggling to make ends meet, we were jealous of people that were coming to church and they were, 
you know, in some of them were in non-profit ministry, but they showed up in a Mercedes Benz or this or that, and they lived in a big house. And, you know, why can't we have that? We can't even afford to go out to lunch after church. And you start to become jealous and envious and resentment uh, creeps in towards God. And then Satan starts whispering into your ear and he says, you see, God loves them more than he loves you. Or he says, you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're sinning in some bad way. Otherwise, God would put you, he would give you more money. And you could have all that and still be a non-profit mean. Wouldn't that be great? And a whole web of sense of failure and resentment towards God begins to creep in. And that wedge between you and God then starts to show up. Why does God do that for them and he doesn't do that for me? Have you ever felt that way? When you have struggled... And people around you did not struggle or God seemed to bless them and didn't seem to bless you. Have you ever encountered, I mean, I, I remember we were serving uh, on staff at a church and there were two women with breast cancer and one was miraculously healed and the other one died. And we struggled with that. Why did God bless the one and not the other? Well, God glorified himself in both. He glorified himself through the healing uh, of the one and he glorified himself through the way the other lady died because in her struggle with cancer she became a witness she wrote letters to all her children that they were to open after she died she witnessed to the doctors to the nurses she was one glorious ray of light in that hospital she was not bitter or resentful one way And so God glorified himself in the way she died. There was something deeper behind it. But at the surface, people started to compare. So what's wrong with the one one got healed, the other one did not get healed. Have you ever felt that way? Why did this person get blessed and I didn't get blessed? And it it starts to make you a little bit resentful towards God. And that's exactly what Satan intends. Then there are lies of temptation. Those we are all familiar with. Stuff that... Satan dangles in front of you that you somehow must have. And we have a whole culture that is based on that. How many of you have ever worked in marketing and advertising? Any of you? Several of you. What is the one thing that makes marketing successful? If you can convince people that they have a need for your product. If Coca-Cola, a little can of brown sugar water... They were successful in convincing that, number one, it quenches thirst, which it doesn't. It makes you more thirsty. Number two, that you can't live without it. Number three, that it tastes great, which, you know, some people, you know, that kind of stuff. And the whole world resolves around Coca-Cola. Nobody needs that stuff. Honestly, it's not good for you. I remember in elementary school, we would take a baby milk tooth, put it in a little glass of coke and it would dissolve within an hour that can't be good for you but somehow they managed to create a web of lies which is essentially what advertising is convincing the world that you have to have coca-cola to get going in the morning to feel good about yourself to quench your thirst and all the while we don't see what it really does to our bodies the soda that undermines your immune system, the aspartame that causes poisoning in your system, the caffeine that keeps you going and undermines your your sleep rhythm at night, etc., etc. So that's just a, a, a way a lie works. 
convincing you, tempting you with something that you think is good for you and is poison. And that again, go back to Satan and Eve, is exactly what happened to Eve. This is good for you because you can be like God and being like God is good for you. Oh yeah, that's good. And all of a sudden, I'm naked. And now I know the difference between good and evil and separation occurred and you, we all know the disastrous consequences once the hook was in the mouth. So temptation, lies of temptation, appeal to the senses and the desires of the flesh. Then there are lies of conscience. We are, Another word for that is sin management. Sin management. Hi, you know what I'm talking about apparently. Sin management. Oh, you know, if I tell a little white lie, I mean, nobody will notice. And it may be actually in somebody's advantage if I don't tell this person this, that, on the other. Uh, or, you know, if, if I, you know, if I get drunk at home, I mean, that doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody sees me. I can just be happy and be drunk at home. doesn't hurt anybody. So I can do that. Those kinds of little white lies. A lot of times we, we tell ourselves, as long as nobody sees it, and we forget that God sees us, watches us all the time, nobody sees it, and nobody's hurt by it, then it should be okay. It's okay if I take my mouse and start clicking on pornographic sites and watch that in the privacy of my home. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's watching that. It doesn't hurt anybody. And we forget that it grieves God, that it skews our perspective on the things that God has created about relationships and things like that. We don't see it. It's sin management, lies of conscience. Oh, if I just do a little bit. Every addict will tell you, and we've had them stand up in some of our youth programs in Johns Creek for young people that have been caught with marijuana or, or alcohol and, and we have somebody from AA who is a little older than they come and talk to them and, and they always say, I took my first drink when I was this age, one drink. And what is it that they were saying to themselves? One drink won't hurt or one joint won't hurt. One pill won't hurt. Just one, just one. And before you know it, poof, the hook is there because they don't realize that all that stuff is addictive and that you can't have just one drink or one joint or one cigarette or one pill without getting addicted to the stuff. Sin management. Then there's lies of perspective, and that is perhaps the most widespread and the insidious. There's worldly philosophies of manhood. There's twisting scripture about manhood and womanhood. Worldly philosophies about womanhood. Uh, there's the media that saturates us with skewed images of men and women. I mean, one of the things that we have we have observed is that in in today's media, the stuff that we watch in the sitcoms and whatnot, the men are always portrayed as a dweeb, and the women are always uh, portrayed as strong and in charge, and the kids are always sassy and no better than their parents completely turning family values upside down. And, and there's the gay agenda that has moved in there. And today's every story has to have at least one homosexual couple in it. And it's designed to make us believe that homosexuality is a normal aspect of society. And I could go on and on and on. And that comes at us and at us and at us through the media. 
worldly philosophies of manhood and womanhood, twisting scripture, media. Also, you are what others say you are. I mentioned that last week, that so many of our criminals point back to the fact that somewhere along the line, in a vulnerable age, when they were in the beginning of their teenage years, somebody influential in their life said, you'll never amount to anything. And they begin to believe that, and it begins to influence them, and it begins to change their perspective. Or somebody keeps saying to you, or people keep saying to you, when you're a teenager, you're ugly. And eventually that becomes your perspective on yourself. I'm ugly. I'm ugly. So, and everybody feels you're beautiful, and you're the last one to believe it. So those are the different types of lies. That's the anatomy of the lie. We've had a goal, we've had a lure, we've had four types of lies. What is the process in which a lie takes hold of us? First of all, the lie has to enter it. We have to hear it. And I use hear in the broadest sense of the word. We hear it with our ears most of the time, but we can also see it with, we can hear it with our eyes, as a matter of fact. So it's a combination. It enters our mind through the senses as an impulse, a message that is being given to us. Something that is uh, enters our mind, a thought, an idea, something we see, something we hear. There's that entry point. Then we receive it. Then we believe it. Then we act on it. And then it becomes a stronghold or even a bondage. So there is a progression that a lie takes if we let it go that far. So the hearing point is what is the origin? At what point did a lie enter into my mind? If you catch yourself thinking, oh, I would never be able to do that. Where did that come from? I'll never have faith like you do. Where did that lie come from? I'll never amount to anything. Who said that to you? Where did that come from? What was the origin, the entry point of that lie? Receive. How did I welcome this lie? See, a lie can knock on your door and and Satan can whisper something into your mind and say, look, you know, it's okay to get drunk once in a while. And you have the ability to say, no, it's not okay, because it says in the scripture, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be gone. And that's the end of the lie. But when you hear something like that, and you start playing with it, and you start harboring it and thinking about it, and saying, well, maybe, hmm. Or if somebody says, you know, you'll never amount to anything, and you start tallying up evidence that you see in your life that, you know, might support that that supposition, and you start to think about it, meditating, harboring it, playing with it, now you are receiving the lie. You're welcoming it into your mind. Eventually then, as you have thought about it, then you start believing it, which means essentially that you are embracing it. You are agreeing with it and telling yourself it's true. Back to Eve. It was very clear that God had commanded them, do not eat from that one tree. All Eve should have said was, I'm not going to because God told me not to eat from that tree. But what does she do? Hmm, being like God, huh? And she starts playing and thinking about it. And there was probably a period of time that she thought about it. Maybe, you know, it was several minutes, several hours. We don't know. And eventually she begins to believe, you know, he's right. He's right. Being like God is a good thing. 
It is now she believes it. Now she agrees with it. So then comes the next thing. And that is that she acts on it. Grabs the apple. Now she's done it. People that perhaps believe that they have certain disorders or something when they do not. Or people that feel bad about themselves because they believe lies. They start to maybe not applying for certain jobs because they think they can't do it. In worst case scenarios, they start self-medicating themselves and they become addicted to uh, certain medications or, or some, you know, sort of emotional anesthesia like cigarettes or alcohol or food or chocolate or who knows what. It can lead to revenge. It can lead to overprotectiveness. It can lead to overcompensation or anything. Uh, see, there's a row of cho- chocolate addicts over there. Dodging from the reaction. So, so um, and then once you start acting on it, now the lie is fully embedded in your thought patterns and it becomes part of your belief system. So now it's a stronghold. Now it has become a stronghold. A stronghold is a belief patterns that completely dominates your thinking. And then it can lead to bondage to where it controls you instead of you controlling it. And you no longer understand that it's a lie. Addicts know exactly what bondage is. Most of the time when an addict uh, has to address, let's say, that drug addiction, you can send them to rehab. And rehab can deal with the physical symptoms of addiction and some of the psychological symptoms of addiction and can, you know, lead it through therapy and whatnot. And then they go back on the street and within a week they're back to their addiction. Why? Because it fails to understand that addiction has a cause, has an origin and a lie about themselves, a skewed perspective about themselves usually has created a wound somewhere deep inside and the addiction compensates for that wound. So you take the compensation away, but not the wound. You send them back on the street. They feel the pain again, and they reach back for the compensation. That's bondage. And an addict will be able to tell you exactly what that is. So there's a little bit about the anatomy and the process of the lie. So how do we get free from lies as they enter us in so many ways? The media, our culture what Satan whispers in our mind directly, what people have said about us, that kind of stuff. How do we get out of that? What is our path to freedom? It begins with recognizing the lies and knowing the truth that sets us free. The more truth we know, the easier it is to recognize lies. Any of you ever been a bank teller? One, you can tell us how do they teach you to recognize counterfeit money? I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you. They, they teach you to recognize counterfeit money by handling real money. A lot of real money. If you know exactly what real money feels like, and then you get a counterfeit bill in your hands, the texture is different. The way the, the, the paper, the weight of the paper is different. Uh, it just feels different in your hand. And you're sitting there going like, wait a minute. This is a counterfeit bill. And then you can start kind of looking at it and you see that certain things are off and you recognize counterfeit money. It's that way, the same way with lies. The more truth you know, the easier it is to recognize lies. The fact that so many lies have crept into our churches 
by way of false teachings and false beliefs that are ravaging our churches these days. And I, I could talk about it for hours to, to tell you what's out there, is because Christians don't know their Bibles. They don't know the truth. They're biblically illiterate, and so they don't recognize it as a lie. They've made themselves dependent on pastors telling them what it is. And if you have a pastor in there that sounds convincing, but is completely off biblical, they don't have any way to recognize whether it's true or not. The more truth we know, the, the easier it is to recognize the lie. Second Corinthians 3.16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is the inability to recognize a lie. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and you know the relationship between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So the more you are under control of the Spirit of God, the more you have the Word of God in you, the easier it is to recognize lies. So here's a couple of steps. The first one is that you pray and ask that God begins to reveal to you the particular lies you've been believing. That's one of the things we do at a True Identity Retreat is we, after we talk about this topic, we send everybody away for an hour and some note cards or a journal, uh, and, and we tell them, take some time and ask, God, reveal to me what lies have I been believing about you and about myself, and write those down. If you ask God, Lord, reveal to me what lies I've been believing, He will. I can guarantee you that. The Holy Spirit within you will rejoice and say, Yes, he's asking. I can tell him or I can tell her. And he will start showing you exactly what lies you have been believing about yourself. It may be something that you heard in your childhood. It may be something that you heard along the way. It may be something that you have done at work or uh, been told that was right, that isn't right, that kind of stuff. Then ask yourself, what is triggering destructive emotions in me like fear and anger and hurt because lies produce those. Lies never produce positive things. Maybe for a little bit it does, but they never produce positive emotions. They ultimately produce condemnation and guilt and fear. Do you know what fear stands for? False evidence appearing real. That's the acronym of fear. False evidence appearing real. We are afraid of things a lot of times because we don't see them correctly. We don't see them through God's eyes. We see them through our human eyes and they seem very different and very strange and very frightening to us. But if we have God's perspective, they're not as frightening anymore. That's why the Bible says perfect love, perfect oneness with God drives out fear. You should be fearless. God doesn't want you to fear but fear him. False evidence appearing real. So anything that you are struggling with that creates anxiety, that creates depression, that creates envy, that creates fear, is based on something in your thinking that shouldn't be there. I could talk here about what the brain does and chemicals as a result of negative thoughts versus positive thoughts, but I don't have the time to do that, and it's a little bit complicated. Is there a root lie or event in your past that caused the lie? For instance, in that story with uh, Simba in The Lion King, Scar told him that he was to blame for his father's death. That was an outright lie because 
Scar himself is the one who murdered Mustafa in that movie. But Simba believes him. He's a little blind cub, impressionable. Scar is an adult, a wily adult, a convincing adult. And so Scar says, you are to blame and run away and never come back. And he believes that that's what the right course of action is. That's what he should do. He believes that they won't accept him anymore. And he takes off and he uh, basically spends his adolescence somewhere completely different and believing a lie about himself. So is there somewhere, some event in your life, some traumatic event, something that somebody said, some experience that has caused you to have a wrong perspective about yourself? Then know the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction, which means I did something wrong, leads to repentance. That's a good thing. Repentance is not just confession of sin. It also is a 180 degree turn away from sin. I was recently counseling with a police officer, a former police officer who did something horribly wrong. And we, I was able to lead him back to the Lord and he was completely stifled in his guilt. He was not able to do anything. And I talked with him about constructive guilt and this is constructive guilt. It's conviction. Conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to action steps in the opposite direction of what you did before. Condemnation, however, says there is something wrong with me. Not I did something wrong. No, there's something wrong with me. And that leads to false guilt. So know the difference between conviction and condemnation. The Bible says very clearly in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for him who is in Christ Jesus. It is that clear, that simple. If you believe in Christ, you do not stand under any sense of condemnation. So if you are walking around feeling condemned because there's something wrong with you, then you are believing a set of lies and you need to start praying, God, what am I believing? What are those lies and where did they come from? And then finally, know the truth. The more you study the word, the more you live in this Bible, meditate on this Bible, memorize this Bible, the more this gets lodged in your mind, the easier it becomes to recognize lies right when they are presented to you and dismiss them before you start absorbing them into your belief system. So here's a little bit of suggested homework, and with that I'll end and pray with us. Um, Suggested homework is uh, spend some time this week alone with God and pray and ask Him this very thing that I've just talked about. Ask him, what lies have I believed? And write them down. If you don't have a journal, get a spiral notebook or something, or get some index cards perhaps, and write down the lies you have believed. And then uh, before it gets too warm outside, build a fire in your fireplace and burn them. Burn those lies. It's one of the things that we have everybody do at the retreat. Once they have come back with the lies we have believed, we have a worship service where they burn those lies. And it's like driving a stake in the ground and saying, I'm done with these lies. I've thrown them into the fire. I embrace the truth. I embrace who I am in Christ with my true, my identity of who I am in Christ and who Christ is in me. So burn them, then give thanks to God that his truth will set you free. And uh, next week we will talk then about the truth, our true identity. How does God see us? And Jennifer and I will be co-teaching that ourselves. By the way, I forgot to mention that 
We have other cards there too. This is for the ladies. An upcoming retreat, True Identity Retreat, where we do a lot more of what we've talked about there, April 19th through 21. If you're interested, there are some cards in the table there as well. Now let me close this with prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are truth. And there is absolutely no lie, no untruth, no deception, no dishonesty within you. And we thank you that you deeply care about the fact that we walk in the truth and we know the truth and that we are set free by the truth. And we confess here this morning that we have at times not withstood the barrage of lies that this world and this life and our flesh and the devil working through all of those have lobbed at us. And we pray that you would reveal to us the lies that we have believed, the lies we are believing, and the things that you want to set us free from and how they have entered our lives. I pray that this would be a turnaround, a reversal in our lives this week as we look towards the truth of our true identity, who we really are in Christ and who Christ is in us. And so I pray for a breakthrough for all of us here in this week as we work this with this teaching material do not let us rest father and cast this aside as yet another helpful set of teaching topics but get to the core of our being if there's anything there that you want us to stop believing i pray that you bring it to the surface and help us recognize it and writing down write it down and, and be done with it so we are ready to embrace the truth of who we are We thank you, Father, for your goodness and for your desire for us to be free, to love you, to be free from fear and guilt and condemnation and failure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you next week. We've changed our Bible verse about three times this week, and so a woman can do that, right? So I was looking back at something more serious about St. Patrick's Day than possibly green beer and corned beef. I don't like either. But I thought, what? and I Googled St. Patrick to say what kind of Bible verse might be appropriate. And St. Patrick lived in Ireland in about the 400s. So do you know when this one might have been written and he might have read it and he might have used it? This would be, and I didn't write the reference up there, slap because I forgot, but it's from Numbers 6. So this would be the Lord saying to Moses. So some of you Bible scholars tell me when Lord the Lord might have said this to Moses. You can do that. St. Patrick would have lived 1,600 years ago. Christ would have lived 2,000 years ago. David would have lived about a thousand years before Christ, and Moses might have lived about a thousand years before David. So does that get us up to about 3,600 years ago? But you really like that, don't you? I really like that. My daughter-in-law has the voice of an angel, and she sang that to her boys every night as she put them to bed. And it'd get to be my turn to put them to bed, and they'd say, Grandma, you can just tell us. <laughs> so let's look at that one, and I want to tell you one more thing about St. Patrick's Day. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm-hmm. It is just so very precious. This one stays on my desk. 
at home every day. So I don't read it every day, but it's an Irish blessing that I picked up in Ireland at some point. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life sends, a faithful friend to share. For every sigh, a sweet song, and an answer for each prayer. God bless you this week.